0: Hi, Jim. Thanks for the dinner invitation. I'd love to, but does it have to be the taco stand?
1: Welcome to 200 A Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta,
2: And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw.
1: And before we get into our episode, we are recording this episode before the last episode airs, in which we said, hey, we are going to start doing our answering machine messages for people who tell us stuff about the show that oh, give us feedback yes. about the about the show. Obviously, our listeners have not yet heard that episode, so we do not have our answering machine queued up for this episode cuz we don't have much more uh, that's come in since then. So this is just to say if you listen to our last last episode and you sent us something due to our time shifted nature of recording. This is like a, uh, maybe it's a Mr. Show bit? I forget exactly, but there's a comedy bit where it's like, if you have questions about the next episode, call us now so that we can talk right. about it next time. Which is to say, if you send us something, we'll get to it next time. <laughs> yeah, sometime. We'll get to it. With that out of the way, uh, what episode are we looking at this time, Epidiah?
2: We are looking at The Deep Blue Sleep. <sighs> It's episode five of uh, season two we uh, Nathan recently did a in-depth analysis of uh, what episodes we have left to watch. Mm-hmm. It looked like we were getting kind of close to closing out of season two so we thought. You know, we might make that a goal uh, and see what we could do. I chose this one uh, after establishing those criteria. I chose this one because it was the first on the list and Beth featured prominently in it. And it's been a while since we had a good Beth story. Uh, I was thinking about that because we're recording right now uh, a year after are Malibu Madness. Ah uh, yes. And Beth featured very prominently in Malibu Madness, and then I feel like we didn't see her for an entire year. <laughs> so uh
1: Yeah, I I think that was a
2: good impulse. So that's that's where we are now in a episode.
1: A episode. The Deep Blue Sleep. This is a uh, another William Wired uh directed episode. So uh we'll we'll get to you we'll get to you, Willie someday <laughs> when we uh do the full retrospective, but, uh, perhaps more interestingly to me, at least, this is one of the few episodes, uh, it is a story by Chaz Floyd Johnson with the teleplay by Juanita Bartlett, but the, the story idea, yeah, it's coming from one of the, uh, uh, producers of the show, first associate producer, and then moved up to, to being an executive producer eventually. Uh, I think there's only four episodes that, um, He contributed. So, uh, yeah, that, I guess that struck me because, you know, I'm so used to seeing the name from the credits, but in my head, kind of like, like meta Rosenberg has been kind of like filed under like one of the producers. And I know that they're, that obviously they're, Going to have some kind of creative contribution, but since we usually focus on the writing uh, and the acting specifically, like the producers, I don't think of in the same bucket necessarily as like right. the quote creative staff. I guess I'm also so acclimated to the David Chase track, where it came in as a writer and ended up a producer,
2: right, right,
1: that it just it just stood out to me that I'm like, oh, this is one of the producers. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why my brain works like that. But it's, no, it's good. But yeah, so uh, just doing a little little dig into the biography. Um, seems like a really interesting guy. I don't need to rattle off a bunch of stuff that you two can read on Wikipedia. But I guess what stood out to me from looking at his, his background and kind of how he came into the this show, he started out acting and he was also a lawyer and and ended up deciding not to pursue that and pursue the world of entertainment instead. Um And, uh, you know, moved out to L.A. and was doing stage acting and and whatnot. And he ended up working as a production coordinator for Universal. And so that's the studio that's producing the show. And I guess production coordinators are generally, like, farmed out to whoever needs them. You know, it's kind of a studio-level gig. It's not a show-level gig, right? He'd done some work for Stephen Cannell before. So he had kind of like there's some some familiarity there, and then in I believe in the second season, um, because Roy Huggins left, I think you know they were looking for another associate producer, and uh, Chaz Floyd Johnson was was able to put his you know put his his name forward, and because they'd done had a good working relationship before, they brought him in, and it's kind of like, the rest is history. Nice. Yeah. So he's from uh, New Jersey, originally, and Delaware, and then uh, ended up in the DC area and doing DC area theater before going out to LA. So he is African American, and has been involved with uh, uplifting black voices in entertainment throughout his career as well. And I thought that was also particularly relevant to this episode because we do touch on the role of race right with the uh our non-Rockford main character with the... Um,
2: the situation she's in.
1: Yes, uh, that the situation that Adrian, the fashion designer, or as, <laughs> as credited on IMDb, fashion designer, Adrian Clark. Yes. The situation that she's in, they specifically frame it as her being black is relevant to how she ended up in the situation she's in, which we will go into when
2: we get into the episode. I have an IMDb question for you. Yes. So when you go to his IMDb page... Mm -hmm. There's a picture of him holding an award of some sort, Mm -hmm. because my eyesight's bad. I can't tell what award it is, but I also probably wouldn't be able to. Uh, And then there's uh, a image of the green dancing alien from the original Star Trek series. And I thought, oh, he must have been involved in Star Trek. But (laughs) he was not. So... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Why? Yeah, I don't know. And when you click through to the five photos, they're just more photos of him. They're not the green dancing.
2: Okay, so this is, but you're getting the same.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's wild. All right. So that award is probably an Emmy? He he went on to, to produce Magnum PI. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, that might actually be the Rockford Files one because Rockford Files won Outstanding Drama in 1978. Uh. And then he had two more nominees with Rockford Files and then two for Magnum PI. All right. Yeah. I would assume. I also cannot identify it from the picture. Though the step and repeat does say Celebration of Diversity. So maybe it's because he was involved with some like other award.
2: This is, I'm sure, super entertaining podcast. But I will say, uh, he's dressed more... He's not 70s dressed in that picture. The suit is... I mean, suits are timeless, but there's a certain 70s... Quality of suits that he doesn't have in that picture, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm thinking that's probably a more recent. Well, whatever.
1: Anyhow, uh, the other thing I wanted to to mention, and uh, I'll put the link to this in the show notes. There's an interview with him on uh, Jim Suva's blog, uh, the Suva Files, JimSuva.TypePad.com, um, who does lots of car-related Rockford coverage, oh, yeah. as well as other uh, other movie cars. The inverse to our show, perhaps. (laughs) Um, People have linked us to his blog for some other stuff as well. But, yeah, he has a 2013 interview with uh, email interview that he did with with Chaz Floyd Johnson. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. And what I particularly wanted to call out was was something that I think we've mentioned with the movies in particular. But how the Rockford Files cast and crew was a very, like, tight group of people. Mm, They really, you know, kind of viewed each other as family. And he mentions that in this interview in a couple of places. So, again, obviously he's done a lot of other things, um, but this interview is focused on the Rockford Files as well. And uh, he ends with, um, Rockford holds a very special place in my heart, primarily because it is the show that launched my producing career, became the series for which I won my very first Emmy, and gave me the opportunity to work with so many talented people. Moreover, to have remained friends with so many of the cast and crew after 40 years is in itself a blessing for which I will forever be grateful. And I thought that was very nice. Yeah. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But uh yeah, just a little since we had the opportunity uh to take a look at uh Chaz Floyd Johnson and I learned things that I didn't know. So that's the whole whole reason we do the show.
2: <laughs> Is to learn things we didn't know.
1: Yeah. With that covered, uh, mm-hmm. Epi, tell us about this episode's preview montage. Uh,
2: well, I think it's a very special one. It starts immediately with Bet very angrily shouting, 200 a day plus expenses, you want the job or not? Uh, I, I My inflection on that was wrong, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, it was a delight to hear.
1: Our iconic line.
2: Yeah, uh, and uh, also, and w- maybe we'll... Well, uh, let me just address this now. Uh, this is a insight into the expenses portion of that where he charges seven cents a mile. And I was very happy to hear <laughs> that that's what he does.
1: I assume that that is the the government rate for claiming your mileage.
2: Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, super happy to see Beth. Then the other two real highlights that st- stuck out for me was the mention of organized crime. and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, OK, good, good. And then borrowing a cop car. Always Which good. I will point out at some point in this episode, I was like, "When does he borrow the cop car?" <laughs> I've been waiting for this. <laughs> yeah, it
1: sets up an expectation that takes a, takes a little while to pay off. Yeah, you know, I was taking my notes for the preview montage. I, I noted all the things that you did, and then the uh, credits roll, and I'm settling in and getting my drink and whatnot, and then I hear what is possibly one of the greatest answering machine messages of all time oh which uh you already heard at the beginning of the show listeners but it's
0: hi jim thanks for the dinner invitation i'd love to but does it have to be the taco stand
1: yeah (laughs) canonically jim takes his dates to get tacos
2: (laughs) that got a guffaw in our household (laughs) uh yeah no that was great
1: hello listeners This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the financial support from patrons really means a lot to us. And we extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time, we say thank you to Chuck from whatyou'reeating.com, Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com, Shane Liebling, Check out his dice rolling app Roll for your Party at rollforyour.party because you know you're playing role-playing games online. Jay Adon and his amazing miniature painting skills over at jadon.com, Dale Norwood, Dave P, Dale Church, Dave Otterson, and Kip Holly. And finally an extra special thank you to our detective patrons for their very generous support. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira at Thermoware. Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where Epi and I casually chat about the media we're enjoying and all the other things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you.
2: And then we get some ominous music.
1: Very ominous. This whole first, first scene is, is very ominous. Um, we start at Clark Fashions Limited, where a woman is leaving the building. She's clearly being being observed from a black car across the street. She seems freaked out. She gets in her own car, which might have been a firebird. I wasn't a hundred percent.
2: It's a muscle car. I mean, mm-hmm. like or a sports car.
1: It doesn't matter. She gets in her. It's a nice car. Her sporty red car.
2: Yes, it's a red car.
1: It's a red car. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, and then we we cut back and forth uh, where Jim is woken up by a phone call. You always know it's bad news when he's woken up by the phone. Uh, so this woman, her name is Margot Adams. She's in a phone booth. She calls Jim, says her name, and then sees the approaching black car and drops the phone and and runs back to her car. So Jim shakes his head and goes back to sleep. And then we have a bit of a car chase here where she tries to take some sharp turns to get away from the car that's following her, but can't shake it. And then gets. Um, trapped in, in uh, some kind of alley with a chain leak fence. She gets out of her car and tries to run away and uh, can't climb the fence. And then we have this fa- fairly disturbing freeze frame on her screaming face as yeah the, like, ominous music
2: crests. It does that, and then we get the, uh, the ringing of the phone mm-hmm. at the same time, which was... I think well done,
1: and uh Jim is getting woken up again this time by Beth uh she had to ask the operator to clear the line, which I am too young to know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it just does that mean that he left that he like left his phone off the hook, or is it because she left her the phone that she called him since she never hang it up? That's more likely
2: what happened okay before cell phones before <laughs> smartphones, there were cell phones, before cell phones uh like this is before probably before redial before call waiting mm-hmm. you wouldn't hear that there was a call on the other line which is like a, a thing that nowadays is just ubiquitous right like you can well nobody calls anyone anymore it's a, <laughs> it's a nightmare to get a phone call now but back when people got phone calls if you were talking to someone No one else could get through to you. Right, right, right. And so if it was an emergency, you might be able to get the operator to basically hang up the other phone and then uh, get through. But I don't, know the mechanics of how all that works
1: i don't think i've ever heard the term clear the line before that was yeah so i was like huh this is clearly a thing that i just have not run across all of our older listeners are now shaking their heads in derision at my sad lack of knowledge
2: back phone numbers were only six numbers (laughs) long
1: uh but yeah so beth has panicked And so the situation that she fills in is Margot called Beth, asked for Jim's name, then called Jim, said her name, then abandoned the phone. And so Beth doesn't know why she wanted to talk to Jim, but clearly she was in some kind of trouble and she wants to know what happened to Margot. And Jim's like, (laughs) Jim's like, I don't know what you want from me. She called, she said her name and she hung up and Beth is having none of it. I've got to know what happened to her. All right, I'll hire you.
2: Uh, when you say hire...
0: 200 a day plus expenses. Do you want the job or not? There are other PIs in the book.
2: Seven cents a mile. Jim? Uh, she is dead serious. Yeah. So we've got this juxtaposition here between um, uh, Rockford being very cavalier about it, probably annoyed that he's being woken up uh, quite a bit, uh, but and unable to hear just how frantic Beth is about mm-hmm. what's happening.
1: Yeah. He's being snarky in a way yeah. that normally would probably be fine, but she is having no patience for it.
2: None whatsoever.
1: They're going to meet at Margot's place. Cause they don't know, like maybe, right. Maybe something happened. Maybe she's at home. Maybe she's not, who knows? So they're going to meet at her place. Jim goes there, lets himself in with the key under the mat and immediately gets whacked in the back of the head.
2: <laughs> Such a classic Jim.
1: Classic move. <laughs> so we uh, have a, a great early season, regular cast scene as Dennis has come with the cops, and we get to have a Dennis, Beth, and Jim yes. throwdown over <laughs> what's going on and who's responsible for what. Um, Dennis is in no mood because he was just sitting down to dinner, and Peggy spent $20 on a standing rib roast. <laughs> I think he says, what, it's going to be cardboard by the time he gets back to it or something yeah. like that? It's a shame. That's a that's a big—that's a lot of roast.
2: I, I honestly—I I don't know— I don't have the context for it, but my head was the thing in the Flintstones that they pick up (laughs) at the beginning.
1: (laughs) With the big, yeah, the big ribs sticking out. Eh, Something like that. So uh, other than... Getting the info that that the place had been tossed. Someone had been looking for something in Margo's place, and she's clearly not there. Um, Other than that, this is kind of a dynamic setting for for these three characters. Jim's annoyed because he got hit on the head and he wants Dennis to do something about it. Right. Beth is still panicked because she wants to know what happened to her friend. Dennis can't do anything about that until 24 hours passes, because that's what you need for missing persons. And so he's kind of trying to, like, calm everyone down. He's being snarky towards Jim, but kind of accommodating for Beth. Uh, And then kind of at the end of the scene, he ends up being like, "Okay, tomorrow afternoon, I'll put in that paperwork. I'll fill out the John Doe assault for you, Rockford. Just let us handle it. You know, this is police business now. So even with the back and forth, he does, uh, you know, kind of at the end of the day. It's like, okay, okay, I'll do all the things. I'm just annoyed because I'm not getting my rib
2: roast right now. There's a few questions I have about time. Yeah. Like, did Jim go to bed early? Is
1: Dennis eating late? I guess he says he has to come all halfway across town. Yeah. So who knows how long that takes.
2: But but I do think this is it's interesting because you had mentioned that, like, his attitude towards Beth and his attitude towards Jim uh are slightly different in the scene and then also the legal stance he can take with e- each of their complaints is the opposite of that right he can't actually uh do anything for beth but he jim has a legitimate complaint to file but yeah it, I, it was a really fun scene to watch not just because i haven't seen these three at it in a while but mm. it just is the it is a classic The three of them all angry at each other in different ways.
1: Yeah, I do feel like this is a bit of a, you know, when we do these, the the earlier, the first and second season episodes, I feel like I probably say this every time now, but it's like, it feels like we're getting back to like, quote, classic Rockford a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Fourth, fifth, sixth season are a little more, um, I don't know, out of the box- with a lot of yeah. the, the situations and stuff. And the first couple seasons are a little more... Formulaic isn't
2: the right word, but... They're still going over the ground. Yeah. They've got the ground that they want to tread, and they're still doing it. At, at some point, they're like, okay, we got to get beyond this. Mm-hmm. So it feels classic, but it's also probably very fresh mm-hmm. for when it when it happens. Because it is the, the second season, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So Jim is walking Beth back to her car and asks why is... Why is Margot so important, anyway? They're old friends. They were—they've been friends since they were ten years old. And Jim says that uh, really, you never talk about her. And Beth says, "My friend Susie. She changed her name when she came to LA to start modeling." Yeah. And he's like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." I kind of like that little detail because I guess if she hadn't changed her name, maybe Jim would have recognized her name from right. talking to on Beth on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a little like ironic piece of of narrative gristle there that that i like but yeah she's only seen her a couple times since since she moved to la four months ago she works at this place clark fashions and that's pretty much it Mm -hmm. jim says he will check it out in the morning and that he's going to follow beth home and she says i don't mind being alone and he says (laughs) i mind
2: yes so we see his
1: protectiveness kind of start to overcome his annoyance i think for our next scene, we go to Clark Fashions for a funky runway rehearsal. A sign that we eventually see establishes this collection as the Ivory Explosion, <laughs> and I have absolutely no reference for how it's a, so. It's a, it's, a, it's a rehearsal for an upcoming runway show, right. yeah. And so it's a bunch of models and they're coming down and posing and 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 whatnot. And I have no idea if this is like of the moment, like if if they're establishing Adrian. So Adrian Clark is the fashion designer that we're gonna meet in a second yeah. but so if they're establishing adrian clark as like very of the moment or progressive or not you know or out of step like i don't i don't know yeah. if this is supposed to establish her in a particular way because i don't have the vocabulary
2: i was thinking about the same thing because the fashions themselves to be seem not out of step with what we would see in the rock profiles like yeah
1: they're not high fashion it's not like yeah. crazy over-the-top couture it's it's right. stuff that people would wear but expensive not every day
2: it was kind of surprising to me how fashionable they would still appear today at least to yeah. my uneducated eye I, mm-hmm. I was like oh yeah no this would this is perfectly fine fashion today um yeah that, so i yeah i spent a little time thinking about that myself because it, it if this were done today, I think the urge would be to make the fashion appear even vaguely ridiculous to show off that it's the high end. Sure, you know what yeah. I mean. Or at least that's what I expect from whenever a fashion show happens in a, in a <laughs>
1: happens on television. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Whereas, like, this just seemed perfectly reasonable fashion.
1: Mm-hmm. Which maybe that's what we're supposed to get, there. This is a perfectly reasonable fashion designer's place. And, you know, she's doing, and I guess this is kind of established later how she's like, she is successful in her field. Yeah. She's not a a, a brilliant luminary star, but she's also not way out on the fringes trying to make it. Right. Solid success. And um, I think we get that also by the fact that she's just so busy, she can't have any appointments. And her assistant tries to keep Jim from coming in to talk to her, but he just bowls right past that guy like he bowled past the secretary and just comes over to Adrian Clark and interrupts the rehearsal.
2: I I want to talk about her assistant for a minute because this threw me. Oh. (laughs) Uh, So the assistant is played by Robert Hayes. And it turns out this is, uh, according to IMDb, his first role. But I absolutely thought that this character was going to be so important to this episode. Because this is the guy who played Starman in the television series Starman, based on the movie Starman, which starred uh, uh, Bill Pullman? No. I have not seen it. Jeff Bridges. Oh, all right. That's me. So, not Jeff Bridges, but the guy who plays the Jeff Bridges character in the TV. I know. I watched the TV series a lot when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, I remember it being fun. But also he's the lead from Airplane mm-hmm. and Airplane 2. Which I did not recognize him. So he's, like, to me, like, immediately I, I recognized him and I thought that... This was a name that they had brought on board to play a meaty, substantial <laughs> role. And instead, this is his first role, and this is all we'll see him in this episode. So I have already wasted more time on this podcast than we should have. <laughs> Anyways, Robert Hayes, everyone.
1: He is ineffectual at stopping Jim Rockford from getting uh, getting to talk to uh, to Adrian Clark. But yeah, he he interrupts the rehearsal. He wants to know if... Um, She can answer any questions about Margot Adams, and she says she doesn't have anything to say about Margot Adams. She did not show up to work that morning at 9 o'clock, which means that she is fired. Or specifically, two words. She's fired. Yes. (laughs) This cuts to a car getting hauled out of a lake, and Jim joins Dennis with the police presence, and sure enough, that is Margot's car, and her body is still in it. So, no mystery there. We uh, get the solid establishment that she has been... Well, the establishment that she is dead. We, as Rockford Files viewers, know that she was murdered. But as of yet, yes. the police can't say whether it was an ac- more than an accident. Which is, as we see in our next scene, making Beth furious. Yes. We do get to go to Beth's apartment, which is always a joy because it is covered in plants.
2: This must be before the cat. It must be, yeah, because they don't yeah. mention
1: having to take care of the cat. We would have to track over in, in chronological time about whether the cat is a persistent character or whether it was just in that one episode.
2: <laughs> That's uh, Schrodinger's
1: cat? So this is Davenport's Davenport's cat? Yeah,
2: Davenport's cat. <laughs>
1: poor Cat may or may not exist in any episode, depending on whether Beth needs to have someone take care of it or not. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, Beth's apartment, uh, it, This the set changes like everything, you know, all the sets, all the interior sets kind of change over time um, in one way or another. But Beth's apartment, I feel like definitely changes significantly from one episode to the next, but it's always covered in plants. And that yeah. is a feature that I've always appreciated. Yes. Beth is furious. She wants to know uh, who killed Margot. It couldn't have been an accident. She couldn't have killed herself. She wouldn't have like gotten drunk and driven into the lake. Um, she just wasn't like that. So she wants to know who killed her, and she wants to know now. This, of course, is an open case, and Jim is trying to talk her down by saying that you know the police have all the facts that we have. They know it's suspicious, but they don't. They can't say it's a murder investigation until they complete the autopsy. You know, he's like mm-hmm. trying to use logic, and Beth is not interested in in being talked down with logic. The cops are on it. That makes
0: it an open case. You're not going to pull your ticket for asking a few questions. No, I'd like to help you. Okay. Back. If the department gives you any kind of flack, you get my legal services for free. Now, would I offer that if I thought you had a chance of taking me up on it?
2: <laughs> I, I really do appreciate this. Um, the back and forth about who owes who what.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, yeah, we'll get into the whole Beth, Beth and Jim thing. But um, what I like about this is that she is assessing her worth in a way that is, is – is, I'm trying to think of the word I'm trying to... Well, anyways, she's obviously saying, like, my time is worth more money than I'd be willing to spend. <laughs> and I like that. Yeah, definitely.
1: What I like at the end of the scene is a thing that we see all the time, but it's the... They're kind of at loggerheads. Jim is kind of... He's not doing a hard, like, I'm not going to do anything with this, but he is right. trying to 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 logic their way into like, just let the police handle it. But we do end with Beth taking a step back and giving him a look and please, Jim, That's what gets him. It's not all the arguing. It's the, she really needs his help. Yeah. And then in a touch that I really like, the camera stays on Beth as Jim leaves. So he goes out of focus as he leaves her apartment and we like stay with her. And I feel like that really puts the like emotional weight. Yeah. Makes that more significant, like that she's not kidding around. She's really worried. And while Jim's going to go out and do the gym things, the motivation here is coming from Beth.
2: Right. It's also, it's troubling. Everything is troubling here. Mm -hmm. There's no... No signs point to good outcomes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no good news here. The news yeah, is not yeah. going to, no matter what it is, the news is going to be bad. Yeah. Jim heads back to Clark fashions uh, yet again. He walks right past Miss Clark's secretary uh, to <laughs> head into her office as um, she's trying to take a call. And who's in there? But Robert Weber playing Bob Coleman uh, we saw him very memorably in uh, Never Send a Boy King to Do a Man's Job. Mm-hmm. He was also the Oracle in a cashmere suit. And he has one more Rockford Files appearance that we have yet yet to cover. But because we saw him so recently in a very similar kind of role, I had a thought at the end of the episode, which was like, there are two possible... like." for this character, so like Robert Weber playing this like slimy businessman who's willing to use extra legal tactics to get, to just like make lots of money covered by legalities, that there was there's like a parallel universe thing where it's like there's this version of the character and we see what happens to him. And then there's the version that ends up going up against Jim and, and um, Richie Brockelman. Right. And he got over this hump. He figured this part out early. Right. And that's why he has his goon. Yes. I don't know if that made sense but you see where i'm going with that
2: no i do i see yes the uh robert weber verse
1: the robert weber verse yes the it's like the spider verse like we see all the different versions (laughs) oh man that's actually very funny we'll have to see what his last character appearance is and and do a little uh little retrospective uh but yes bob coleman is a friend and business associate to adrian clark jim tells them that Margot is dead
2: oh that was pretty blunt miss clark has so little time my notes on the scene because so Jim drops that line and then my notes are there are a lot of looks in this room
0: because
2: mm-hmm. what's happening is everyone's acting and mm-hmm. it's good but they're all conveying um, things that her have depths to them that draw me in to a way where I'm like okay so why is well. Because we were just talking about the Robert Weber verse, I know why we're getting the looks from him. He's just sh- he's just shady. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> we see him, we're like, okay, this guy is involved somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, I I really enjoyed that moment where he drops the the bomb, and then it, it, you just have like each person sort of reacting to it in mm-hmm. a way that that uh, isn't just shock there's there's layers to it
1: yeah absolutely and i think we are as audience we are meant to see that there are looks being exchanged and things probably not being like truth not being told yeah uh adrian doesn't have much more to say about Margot. she did her job she was an employee didn't really know her personal life uh bob coleman says he'd know where to look at her but doesn't know you know doesn't know any of the models personally hmm and this is the this is the character line for Bob Coleman, where Adrian wonders if they should postpone the show.
0: I mean the girl is dead. there's nothing we can do about that now twenty four hours isn't going to make a lot of difference. business as usual well of course
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked that you would even think I would care about anything other than the business right Jim uh takes his leave. he talks to the secretary on his way out. Because she she heard the news, she was like in the doorway when he you know told them that Margot was dead. She's clearly upset, he kind of offers some comforting words, but is also prying uh, in the way yes. that he does Bob Coleman didn't seem too shaken up. he must not have known her, and the secretary says, "Oh." he knew her in the biblical sense of the word dun 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 uh and then she starts fake typing in order to to show that she has so much work to do and can't talk to him anymore and jim can see from from her fingers on the typewriter keyboard that she's doing uh the brown fox jumps over the lazy dog
2: yes (laughs) one of the things i like about this moment here is that jim sees her as he's leaving and and you can see him realizing that he has an opening here to maybe get more information and uh, turning around and, and engaging in that. He's
1: very, like, blunt in this episode. Yeah. Adrian calls him out on it later, where she's like, you're you know coming in like a bull elephant. And it's not like he doesn't do that, but I guess at this, like, right now, I'm still a little more accustomed to the slightly more Khan-esque right. things where he's a little more, uh, where he's being a little more misdirectional and here he's just coming in and like i have no attachment to you people here's what i need to know if i come in this way will you tell me what i need to know how about if i do this uh and it's very like
2: transactional there are a couple moments later in this episode where this tactic there's a subtlety to the tactic uh which i think you just hinted at that that kind of becomes text later on he Drops some things on Adrian and then leaves, and he admits to waiting for a couple hours to see if she does anything with right, right. So a lot of what's happening is him uh, going in with his swell spoon and stirring it up uh, and then stepping back to see how yeah. people react to it. Uh, and um, and then there's very specifically, I mean, will get to it, but at the end of the episode, I think a very clever ploy where he does the same thing. Mm. It gets him what he needs to know. Mm. Um, but that one actually is a little bit more of a con. But yeah. it's still it's still very like, I'm going to just... Give you the information.
1: Mm, yeah, what's important is what you do with it, not yeah. whether you know it. Yeah, Jim uh, stakes out the parking lot and follows Coleman when he leaves in his in his green station wagon. Though I don't think it's actually a station wagon, but it is green. Yeah, <laughs> this is important later. Um, so he follows Coleman to a parking lot where he hands off an envelope to uh, someone in this black car that I think
2: it, we've seen this.
1: Yeah, we've seen this black yeah. car. It's from the from the beginning. So now we know for sure that he's involved with whatever's going on. Jim gets the license plate number of the black car and then continues following Coleman, who goes up to a fancy, fancy house. And then Jim just shoots. So the camera's following Coleman. And it's like, OK, so now we're following him. And yeah. then the Firebird that shoots in from off camera to cut him off before he can get into his oh, driveway. So good. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess Jim was also still here. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fun surprise. And uh, Jim confronts him uh, right there at the bottom of the driveway. He wants to know why Coleman claimed he didn't know Margo. Kind of implies that Adrian already knew about their affair, which I think he's just throwing out there to see how bob reacts right yeah coleman will not give anything up really uh and he says that he doesn't know anything about Margot's accident but he'll know all about jim's and He starts <laughs> honking his horn and a couple of goons come running down the driveway and jim pieces out before uh they can get to him but this is a fun little face off of jim trying to get some kind of information and seeing which way coleman's going to jump once he confronts him and coleman just being like i'm not telling you that i'm not shady but i am right. denying the specific thing that you're accusing me of <laughs> uh and now we do actually follow coleman to his house without jim suddenly uh swooping in and i guess this is where the episode opens up a little bit before we started recording, we were talking about this a little bit, and someone, one of us, mentioned that this is like more of a omniscient narrator episode. Right from here on out, we definitely are getting a bunch of information that Jim doesn't have, so it's not as much of a mystery to unravel and more of a waiting to see what the motivations are kind of story. Yeah, I think.
2: yeah, exactly. It's it, like. In the same way that Jim's just putting things out there, I think the story just isn't being coy with uh, a bunch of details mm-hmm. that you would expect it to be coy with. No, this guy's mobbed up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> which is pretty clever, I think, because at least for me, what that ends up doing is completely concealing the twist that's coming in a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Because <laughs> It's like, oh, we're just going to watch this unfold uh and it does not actually do any telegraphing of the twist which we'll yeah. get to in a minute so uh a a goon you know comes up to coleman as he comes into his house there's some big big important person who's been calling him they mentioned like a three million dollar deal coleman's like i'll call him this evening and then he he kind of lays down the law you stop talking I'll call him back this evening. Now leave me alone. Uh, Kind of establishing (laughs) that he's the boss, right? Yeah. So then he makes a phone call once he's alone. He wants a message delivered. Says there's a new player, Jim Rockford. He's poking around and you guys are blowing it. And if he can't trust who he's working with, he'll work with someone else. Then he hangs up the phone. Jim is talking to Beth as as they're both returning to Beth's apartment and trying to suss out what a motivation would be. Coleman seems like he's involved. Why would he kill her? Um, What if Margot threatened Coleman that she'd go to Adrian to reveal their affair? But then Beth's like, she wouldn't do that. Maybe she'd do that. (laughs) (laughs) Having trouble establishing motivation here. Uh, But they go into Beth's place and it has also been tossed. Jim asks if Margot had given her anything to hold. And she says no. She can't tell if anything's been taken because everything's all, all messed up. What I took away from this scene was the shift of expertise from Beth to Jim, kind of, over the course mm-hmm. of the scene, where up to now it's been, like, Beth wants this done. Beth is the one who knows the information, who knows the person, you know, who's who's providing the, the motive force. But here, Jim's like, whatever's happening, now you're in danger. Yeah. It's like, your parents are back in Pasadena, right? Go stay with them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, this is... Uh it's It's a slightly disappointing moment in the story for me because again, I picked it because I wanted more Beth,
1: yeah, and yeah. this
2: is where Beth steps out, mm-hmm. uh but also I like th- what you're talking about this dynamic is you know, it's the thing where <laughs> Jim's whole job is that he gets in trouble, mm-hmm. like that's the thing, so he he's like, okay, now, now we're in trouble,
1: and now he's being he's the one who's being very serious, and yeah. you know, not yeah. not letting any jokes happen while uh. He manages this situation. We uh, He does call, call Dennis to find out what they got from the uh, license plate trace that he'd called in mm-hmm. with some standard, why don't you uh, give some business to the DMV, etc. But it turns out that that car, that black car, was registered to a produce business, Macklin Produce Company. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, like cantaloupe, string beans. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh so that's the mob but uh jim takes beth's phone book finds a page and i was like he's going to tear it out and then he tears it out <laughs> and beth goes jim and he says it's okay i'll return it jim then goes to talk to adrian clark at home they have kind of two cons- or they have kind of two sparring scenes this was the first one jim thinks that she knows something that she's not telling him And she is denying that she knows anything that he doesn't already know. Specifically, uh, Adrian's the only one that he told Beth's name to. Like, because when he first talked to her, he was like, I have some questions about Margot Adams. I'm working for her friend, Beth Davenport, who's curious, you know. Yeah. Adrian's the only one who knew Beth's name. And now Beth's apartment has been tossed. Uh, Did you tell Bob Coleman who my client was? And she says, no, of course not. Why would I have done that? Jim throws out that he was having an affair with Margo. And Adrian says that she didn't know, but she isn't surprised uh, that Bob is not does not live a monastic life. (laughs) And she does not appear to be surprised. So, yeah, it's more like I didn't know because I didn't want to know.
2: Right. It's the 70s. Yeah.
1: She tells him to look for a motive for murder somewhere else. And he says that he's looking exactly in the right place. <laughs> so Adrian, Adrian Clark, or as credited fashion designer, Adrian Clark. Yes. Um, is played by Janet McLaughlin, who I have not been familiar with. And I had a question for you because I kind of found her affect very flat in this episode. And I don't know, I it wasn't very compelling to me, but I... By the end, I wasn't sure if that was on
2: purpose or not. I suspect it is. um, uh, Because, I mean, we've hinted at this, but it'll come up that she's trying to survive however she can survive. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, by not reacting... I don't know, I... I kind of got it as like guarded. That's how it came across to me. Mm. But that's a hard distinction to make when you're watching it.
1: I wasn't sure if she was playing someone who is like keeping all of her emotions tightly under control, right? And it just coming across to me as a little unemotional, right? You know, like that's a that's a delicate line because we do see her have more emotions at the end of the episode. But again, it's still kind of one dimensional because uh, she's like physically threatened, right? Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. Like it definitely could have just been me because I'm taking notes and not just like watching it and and picking up on any That is subtleties. the danger of a
2: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably the thing we really need to examine here is uh the fact that Jim makes coffee with a French press.
1: Mm, yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> true, sure, we do see that in a, in a few minutes. We just have a quick scene, though actually a very important scene in between. So this, is, this was the first uh, uh, head-to-head for Adrian and Jim, and then we'll have another one, but in between them is the probably the most exposition, like the most like required for making this plot work exposition scene. <laughs> Back at Clark's, uh, Adrian asks Bob if he had had best apartment search, because she did tell him. Right, so she had lied to Jim. She did tell Bob about it. Right. And he denies it. He's like, why would I do that? Adrian knew about the affair that he had with Margot the day it started. She doesn't care, and it doesn't matter. But she does want to know what's going on, which I think that all makes sense. So Bob Coleman, he basically changes the subject by being like, you know what? That's not important because you have to be ready to talk to the new owners of your company. What? what, what? Well, those were the papers that he had her sign yesterday, not generic contracts. And there's a lesson for you. You should always, always read the fine print. So this does feel pretty sudden.
2: (laughs) Yes, it's also very arch. He is he is gone from the smarmy, smarmy, yeah, smarmy, mm-hmm. comforting. Because like when Jim, when Jim came into the office with him, when Bob was there with her mm-hmm. and dropped the bomb, he was like protective of her and like caring. And now he's like, you get what you deserve, right, yeah. for trusting me, right? <laughs> and
1: it's been it's been the long con because it's been yeah three years. So what we get from this. Scene is clark fashions has been built on bob coleman's money over the last three years um and he has been in the background making this deal to sell the company behind her back because she's signed away some of her you know some of her 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 rights or whatever without noticing it um though it is on the open market she can buy it for herself if she can raise three and a half million dollars by next tuesday (laughs) and then in addition to that the company that now will own her company has her on a contract and has sold that contract to someone else for the next five years
0: right you're like a baseball player baby you've been sold to another club
1: Uh, So, yeah. So Bob Coleman, bad guy. Uh, There's something about like this having kind of no buildup that feels a little sudden, but also, I don't know, it's effective. It's like, whoa,
2: (laughs) right? Okay, so I think this is a part of, of what we were talking about before, where we're, um, this episode keeps just showing you things that mm-hmm. you're expecting them to keep quiet. Like, you almost expect her to come across that contract, you yeah. know, not have him drop it in her lap and tell her, but have her discover it and be like, wait a mm-hmm. minute, what's going on? So the question is like, is this done on purpose? I think there it could be read as there's a purpose to this, because I think... By Bob is in a hurry now. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of the mystery that hasn't been revealed to us yet, because Mm -hmm. that's the big uh, reveal coming Mm -hmm. up, I think. So uh, like, I think that there's a way to read this to go, Oh, right. He's, Maybe even in panic mode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's why he's being the way that he's being and just dropping it on her.
1: Yeah. And we're not really sure why. We just yeah. know that like, you know, he probably killed Margo. That's still not like 100% confirmed. Right. Or he had her killed probably. Right. Like, yeah. Because that black car is, seems to be whoever he's dealing with. Yeah. Now he's like, I need to sell this company right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. Well, speaking of being in panic, uh, we go to Jim's trailer where he <laughs> is making his. French press coffee. Yes. Uh, when Adrian knocks on his door. Uh, I was so
2: shocked by that, and I don't know why.
1: <laughs> I mean, he's had a coffee machine in the past. Like, he's just had drip coffee, I think.
2: I can't, I cannot tell. I can't remember.
1: But when you get right down to it, why not have a French press? It makes sense for his, for his setup. Yeah,
2: it does. It, it's him alone in a trailer that it just seemed so French.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it seems slightly fussier than he would be with his coffee slightly more bourgeois than we would expect from right from jim
2: i'd almost expect his coffee to come from the taco stand like right. he would just walk <laughs> over to the taco stand order some coffee and it's just really bad taco stand coffee if,
1: if keurig cups existed at this time or
2: instant like that's yeah. another thing he might um with uh crystals mm-hmm. Folgers has crystals. Mm -hmm. That was the thing, I think, around the time when it was really... They are trying to convince people that they had tricked a restaurant full of people into believing it was real coffee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I gotta tell you, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even a coffee snob, but instant coffee is it's not for you uh no in this household we call it ironic coffee uh (laughs) because of the the coffee mugs the worlds without master Ah. coffee mugs make fun of instant coffee but every so often i have instant okay so here's the deal (laughs) none of this should make it to the show my dad makes instant coffee all the time and it's an after dinner drink and for some reason if i drink instant coffee after dinner the caffeine doesn't mess me up for falling asleep
1: my family's version of that is the after dinner espresso
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. yours is better than mine
1: I, I mean look i'm not making a value judgment i'm just saying no. i have yeah, the same no. experience if, if i'm at my parents house and i have an espresso after dinner i'm fine anywhere right. else if i drink coffee after like noon I'm messed up for the rest of the day. No, this is exactly (laughs) it.
2: So for some reason, the instant coffee has this effect on me where it helps me wake up, but it doesn't keep me up. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Okay, that's the extent of the story. (laughs) We can move on. Jim Rockford has a French press. Right.
1: Well, let's take a little break. Uh, We want to make sure that you know where you can follow all of our other projects and interests online. Epi, where can our listeners find
2: you? Uh, you can Google Epidaea. I am the only one out there that I know of. Uh, you can go to dig dot com. That's the number a thousand. Or you can go to worlds plural without master singular.com dot com and uh, find my work there. How about you, Nathan?
1: My Internet home for all things NDP is at ndpdesign.com. dot com. You can find. All of the links and information for all of my various games, including the World Wide Wrestling role-playing game, my zines, and uh, podcast projects, of which perhaps there may be more than one. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at ndpaoletta. As always, if you want more information about the podcast, go to 200aday.fireside.fm.
2: And now back to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish.
1: So this is our our, our second Jim... Gym- Adrian head to head this time she's coming to him now he he mentions his his methodology of after telling her all those things then he staked out her place to see if she was gonna go go to you know Coleman and she says that she had her coat on for about a minute and a half <laughs> not really sure what that means but they start having some some banter um Mm. throughout the scene um he knows that whatever is happening is tied into coleman and wants to know his role in her company she says bookkeeping which he says is ridiculous the series of lines is great i love the dialogue here
0: i made a mistake coming here then leave i don't have anybody else to go to
2: then level Yes, I wrote that one down too. It's really pleasant when it's written down too. Mm-hmm. Then leave, then level. Uh, anyways,
1: it's good. Yeah, it's good. Credit for that goes to Juanita Bartlett for the teleplay. I would, I would say. Yeah, she's clearly afraid to say something. So I guess this is. Yeah, I mean, she she does a good job in this scene. I retract my my previous shade throwing <laughs> um, because she she clearly has something she wants to say. Jim can see it. We can see it, and. We can see her giving Jim enough time to pressure her to spill, which she wants to do, but she doesn't want to do, but she wants to do, right? Yeah. Part of that is laying out some of her story, uh, where three years ago was just her and her sewing machine. She has this, you know, passion for fashion design, and she worked really hard, but she, I think she says for, she's from Watts, right? So, you know, it's like the fairly disadvantaged area um, that she's from uh, and that things are tough coming from there uh, being black and being a woman like deck stacked against her. No matter how hard she works, she topped out at a certain point and like didn't have anywhere else to go. She's stuck. And I feel like that all rings very true, right? Yeah. (laughs) Possibly truer now than it was then. And then uh, Bob Coleman shows up with a green station wagon full (laughs) of cash. Yeah. Uh, It got her out. And she didn't want to know where it came from. So Jim's like, "So wait, he finances companies in cash? So he's involved with organized crime, then?" Yes. <laughs> and this whole kind of thing is is long term uh, money laundering. You use dirty money to fund a startup company, then it sells to another company in a legit business transaction, and that's where you get you get your your clean your clean money out of the out of that business. She doesn't know what's going on. But she does know that he keeps an insurance policy in the form of written records of his transactions for all this stuff, which is bad news if you're dealing with the mob. Yep. So Jim is now putting the pieces together with that piece of key information, I think. Uh, she doesn't want to go to the cops. They never want to go to the cops. Uh, but specifically, it's the end of her whole business if she goes to the cops. You know, too yeah. many questions. It's built on dirty money, etc. She, she wants to go confront Bob. And if he doesn't come with her, she'll do it alone. And that's what gets him. Yeah. Now that he knows that Bob is involved with organized crime, uh, that is too dangerous. And so he will not let her do it herself. And so he invites himself along for this confrontation.
2: I want to just point out that this conversation, uh, it was really good. Uh, but it also encapsulates uh, our standard Rockford hmm. contract, which is, I'd like to hire you. no. like no i won't do any work for you uh and then well now i've put you in a situation where you have to say yes
1: right and i also noticed that though she starts off by saying she wants to hire him right by the end of the scene there is no mention of uh his fee or anything yeah and uh unfortunately i don't know if he is officially hired or not
2: Uh, yeah i I doubt it. I don't think so. No, I mean, given his track record, but also
1: <laughs> he's also already working for Beth. Yeah, theoretically,
2: but I just imagine, yeah, again, as the role of Rockford's bookkeeper when she says, "I want to hire you," and he's like, "No," and I'm like, "You're doing the job anyways. Just take the
1: money. <laughs> <laughs> just get paid twice for doing one job. It's fine. It's fine." Yeah. In the car to Coleman's, uh, Jim posits that maybe Bob told Margo about his book and she got a hold of it. Right. And and that's what she was killed for, And but they didn't find it, so that's why they went to Beth's, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is our current hypothesis. But there are cop cars at Coleman's driveway. So Jim wants Adrian to stay put and he'll go check it out. And Becker is on the scene talking to the coroner. We, we have our, our sudden turn here into some gangland territory.
0: Yeah. One bullet in the throat, one in the mouth. What does that tell you? Thought he was a talker. His friends didn't like it. They signed their name. So nobody else gets ideas.
1: Dennis asks Jim why he's there. He's there to ask Bob Coleman some questions. Well, he's fresh out of answers. <laughs> If you thought our last scene was sudden, now Bob Coleman has been killed. Yep. Yep.
2: Dun-dun-dun.
1: Jim explains the situation from his end. Becker is not surprised to hear that he was connected, that that Coleman was connected, but he did not know about the record book. So Jim did have a piece of new information.
2: This scene, uh, this is one of those scenes where I... I feel like telling our audience, if you haven't watched the episode, you should just watch this scene. This is a really good scene between Jim and Dennis. Uh, Dennis has so many good lines.
0: What do we do without you? Bunch of stumble bums running the department and you're always right around there saving us.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Jim Rockford's here to save us. And, mm-hmm. then, and the way that Jim takes that in stride.
1: That ironic dismissal tells Jim that Becker already knew about the mob connection.
2: Right. And then he says something about the, um,
1: so does that mean you already found the book or he recorded all of his transactions?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you didn't know about that. Oh, it's so good. It's just this <laughs> fun little back and forth. Yeah. Where are you going? Oh, take a shower. Stay out of it. Stay out of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but then again another dun 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 when jim goes back to the firebird adrian is gone
2: i have a note here that i missed but uh in that previous scene before jim heads out to discover this uh when they're in the car there's just this great moment of like it feels like this mutual respect Mm -hmm. they come up and they see that there's the cops there and they pull back and it's just like uh, like a, a moment when they both realize that they're both very capable in, in their situations. Mm-hmm. So when she was gone, I had this thought like, well, did she she would run out with him? And it, was, it turns out that is not the case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, I just had this, like...
1: Like, did she go off on her own because she had her yeah. own idea of where what to do next or something? Yeah. But no, she has been picked up by our ominous black car, where she is now yes. in the back seat with a pinstripe-wearing goon. <laughs> he turns out to be George Macklin of the aforementioned Macklin Produce Company. If you all remember.
2: You know, cantaloupes, string beans.
1: Yep. And we can tell immediately from the, uh, slangy line delivery that uh, this guy is, is all mobbed up.
2: All mobbed up and nowhere to go.
1: And they're gonna put Adrian on ice until her company is sold as there's still some papers she needs to sign. She's clearly freaked out. She asks if something happened to Bob and he ends with a great line.
2: Hey, hey! Right now, you're an asset like that. You become a liability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a good one.
1: Jim makes a phone booth call to the Macklin Produce Company. Uh, good thing he brought that page from the yes. phone book with him.
2: Otherwise, you'd have to check Google.
1: <laughs> i mean what if that fo- phone booth didn't have its own uh, phone book maybe its page is already torn out you never know yeah exactly uh, maybe a pi has been there before <laughs> um the secretary that he calls says that there's no way he can talk to mr macklin but he claims to be from the fire department and that there's a brush fire behind his house so he needs to talk to him immediately so she patches him through to the car phone yeah once on the phone uh it says he's a friend of adrian clark's Jim, this is where I think you were saying Jim's big yeah. big play, right?
2: yeah, the back and forth is great because before we had Bob, who is mobbed up but maybe not a mob boss, like now our yeah. understanding of Bob's situation is that those thugs with him may not have been his thugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But now we've got the big, big bad guy, and, and he does not care to be talked to, uh, and Jim is walking this tightrope of being just aggressive, just abusive enough to keep his attention without getting him to go off the line. Mm-hmm. But largely to say that the—because uh, Jim doesn't know where he is, Right. so he's like— you want to know where this this ledger is? It's in his home in a safe. And I didn't know Jim's play, right? right? So I'm watching it and I'm thinking, well, he just told him. So he can't like use it as a bargaining chip to get Adrian back. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Then it occurred to me <laughs> as I'm watching it. Uh, it didn't occur to me before it was actually shown to me. But then the whole point here <laughs> is to get somebody to go back to the house that Jim can follow back. Right.
1: Yeah, because he's like, once the once the cops search the house, they're going to crawl through the whole thing. They're going to find the safe, and that's where the ledger yeah. is. Uh, all I want is Adrian's safe. I'm giving you this information in exchange for letting her go free or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and Macklin's just like, okay, you told me. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> so the goon that he has with him is the guy who coleman like brushed off in that earlier scene yeah uh who is very oily <laughs> and says that he never saw a safe in the house worked for for him for five years and never saw a safe and it's like well you worked for him for five years and he didn't know about the ledger either so get over there <laughs> and go through the house thoroughly and as you see jim has it staked out uh sees the black car arrive time passes follows the black car as the guy leaves and we return to the warehouse where they're holding adrian jim sneaks up and eavesdrops there was no safe you know there's there's absolutely no way that that, that was in the house and so macklin is suspicious well does anyone follow you he's like no there's no way anyone followed me so we know his powers <laughs> of observation are not a hundred percent
2: this is also the point in in the tale when i'm like when does he borrow the cop car? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Jim is at a payphone calling it in, calling in the situation. Yes. To Dennis, don't come in here like it's a New Year's Eve party. And then we zoom out front or pan out or something as he leaves the uh, phone booth. And we see the cop car sitting yes. there in the middle of the <laughs> gas station lot. And the cops who were in the car are off chasing some kids. They'll have to be back any minute now. When they do, you tell them I'm borrowing your car. What are you, crazy? You tell him Sergeant Becker said it was okay. Sergeant who? And now we have a, it's not really a car chase, but it is a automobile based action scene.
2: I love this scene. I, I agree. Like it, it's, it's a lovely take on the, cause he's running out the clock, right? Like yeah, he's. Yeah. He's waiting for the cops to show up. And so he's just playing every trick he can to try and uh, delay it. And it's just, it's a neat way to involve cars that isn't just a standard chase. Mm -hmm. But it has all the elements that a chase would have.
1: So it's a fun scene. Um, The situation is that there's a warehouse in the middle of like a lot. There's a main entrance with a gate and then there's an alley behind the warehouse. And yeah. the warehouse also has big doors on each side, right, so uh Macklin's car, the black goons car they've they've stuffed Adrian back in there. they're peeling out, and then Jim cuts them off at the last second. siren's blazing in the cop car that he borrowed, yeah, um they back up to go around the warehouse, he gets to the fence on the main entrance first and chains it shut, so they can't get out through there, so they go. Back to the alley. Jim burns rubber backing up to block them with the car again. (laughs) And then he is calling on the radio in the car that, Officer's in trouble. I'm outnumbered. Get down here. (laughs) He follows them back into the lot as they're backing up. Macklin leans out the window and starts taking shots at him. He dives, grabs a bullhorn out of the car, and starts yelling fake orders like, Get the snipers on the roof! Get another squad around the back.
2: Again, establishing that he's Sergeant Becker. Right, which I right. Think yeah. is...
1: This is Becker! <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was unnecessary, but wonderful.
1: They realize that they can go through the warehouse, so they roar in through one side, and then sque- there's lots of squealing, lots of brakes, lots of rubber yeah. burning, but uh, it takes them long enough to open the opposite door and go through that the rest of the real cops have finally arrived, and they all pull in and surround the car, and, um... As they're getting the mobsters out of there at gunpoint, Jim helps Adrian out of the car and she's, she's terrified and says that they're, they're going to kill me. Jim says that it's all right. And we have a little freeze frame on the two of them as he's kind of arm around her shoulders to, to comfort her in this, this time of time of need, presumably uh, justice is served and the Macklin produce company perhaps ends up (laughs) with a new precedent. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> it was just a fun tactical scene, I mm-hmm. think, just, you know, with the cars, just the different ways he boxed them in yeah. and, you know.
1: It's like one of the real features about the show that, you know, comes up with a lot of the car stuff where the 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 physical relationship of everything is very clear. And so all the tactics make a lot of sense. Yeah. When things get confusing for me is usually when it's like, wait, where are they? What street are they on? How did they get there? And we've mentioned that in the past for car chases that are like, wait a second, I'm not sure how they ended up there, right? Yeah. And then this kind of thing is just so visceral because it's like, I could watch it all play out in my mind that, like, bird's eye view as they were doing all the stuff at the street level, and that makes it feel very real to me, which which I like.
2: And there's a, there's a feeling of, like, they could slip away at any moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a real desperation.
2: Yeah, it's like a juggling thing, you know? Like, oh, no, which... Uh, And it's good. It's good. Uh,
1: The one thing that is missing is Jim doing a uh, pulling a J turn in the cop car. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, you can't have everything. Yeah. We end our episode with, I believe, some some time has passed and Jim and Beth are going into a more of a retail store, Adrian's. So this is Adrian Clark's new store. Business is picking up. She's even a lot of her old clients have come with her and are buying her stuff. She's even selling to her probation officer. (laughs) So we fill in a little bit of, of how things all went down. There were a lot of questions. She built her company on dirty money and she could have gone away for a long time. But she had a good attorney. So even though Beth still thinks that the probation is unnecessary it sounds like she got off a lot easier than she could have right yeah i think because jim says you had a good attorney and i think does beth get a little choked up is that what that moment yeah, is
2: yeah because she
1: then excuses herself right like i'm gonna go browse but she's like a little like oh yeah exactly jim said i was a good attorney <laughs> <laughs> but that leaves them uh jim and adrian to have a little final conversation and fill in a little bit of the plot for us in the end Coleman, as it turns out, kept his record book in a safety deposit box. And if it hadn't been uh, so, the, the oily groon, his name was Ray. Ray was trying to take over his territory, and he was going to use yeah. that as leverage. And if it hadn't been them, it would have been someone else because you don't, you know, you don't keep those kinds of records when you're dealing with the mob. I guess so. Margot's death is still listed as an accident, but the only accident that was made about it was that they did it before they found the record book. Right. Adrian is is making it more on her own now, and she's going to slam the door on any more green station wagons full of money. But now. If it's baby blue and Beth (laughs) looks at them in the background as they laugh and laugh and freeze frame. End of episode.
2: Beth's look at that freeze frame. It's so horrified. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly Adrian and Jim are laughing. It's an inside joke. I mean, there probably isn't a reason why Beth should know about the green station wagon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it just it's like, wait, no, you're not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't even joke about that.
2: Yeah, uh, it's good. It was fun. There are some moments in this episode that I, I like really stand it out. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good uh Jim and Dennis, Jim, Dennis and Beth, and Jim and Beth stuff going on. And like I said, I really enjoyed that car thing at the end. Mm-hmm. The car mm-hmm. thing. Not a chase. It's a car thing.
1: The car action scene.
2: Yeah. The the cat and mouse mm-hmm. kind of thing going. Um so yeah, solid uh season two episode. Yeah. It was it felt I think we talked a little bit about this, but like it felt, um, you know, we. I think I said the word classic maybe two or three m- more times than <laughs> I should have. But it felt very like it, yeah. like you said, we've been doing later episodes for a while. And so coming back to the, the roots, mm-hmm. especially I think season two, which is not only the roots, but the roots once they figure out where they're planted the the signature of the show makes sense
1: ba- back to our episode t- typologies this is a well this is this is a jim's friend brings him a job yeah it's also jim takes a job kind of cuz she is going to pay him and we presume yeah. that she did
2: i guess well it's in that ledger the the, <laughs> the, the jim beth ledger right right Exactly. Um,
1: yeah, and so there's there's kind of a there's kind of an angle of the episodes too where like are they about the I mean there's always a mix, but like are they more about the crime slash criminal or are they right. more about the client slash victim? And there's yeah. always an, an amount of both, but this one was much more like we don't really care what the actual crime is. We do care about the people who are being affected. About the, you know, the, the victims are, so it's more like Jim protecting people than Jim excavating to get to the root of the, of the, of the problem. And so that's a little more action-y, I think, um, and
2: a little less mystery-y. Part of it is that the, the crime itself was always going to out itself, Yeah. right? Like, uh, whether or not Jim was there, well, I mean, if Jim, if Jim wasn't there, Adrian would have been in trouble, right? Right. Well, yeah, I guess because everything's in motion bob Mm. would have been executed either way right it's not something jim did that brought to light that the ledger exists
1: except for possibly bringing in the fact that beth knows about it and so getting them to toss beth's apartment which then i guess presumably at some point in that chain the mob learns that bob has this ledger
2: yeah well They know it ahead of time, because that's the whole reason why Margo's in, in trouble, right?
1: I think that was unclear to me, I think, in the end, which is like, Margo is killed by the mob, indicated by that black car. Yeah. Was Margo killed because the mob found out about Bob's ledger and thought she knew something about it? Or did Bob have the mob kill Margo because Margot found out about his ledger. Right. Those are two different chains of motivation.
2: Yeah, and so the ledger itself is never found.
1: Yeah, like the cops find it
2: later in a safety deposit box or whatever. Oh, that's right, yeah.
1: When Bob makes his phone call and he says, this guy Jim Rockford's poking around. Right. If I can't trust people, I'm not going to do business with them. That's him calling another mob contact, because then it's like that guy Jay was his mob contact, but he's the one right. who he sent out of the room. So it's a little like was there some weird mob politics stuff going on that was kind of underneath it all? It's a little muddled to me. Um yeah. I guess there's not like a, a solid establishment other than Jim saying this is probably what happened of why yeah. Margo was killed. In in the name of like having the all the the full narrative arc kind of together that's a little shaky to me, but as the premise for the episode, like it's fine, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like that's what gets us into the story. So
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So the main concern is not the mystery itself, or un- uh, yeah, unraveling that, but is the how to keep people from being harmed by right, the unraveling right. of the mystery.
1: Yeah, and so we see we see Jim take that very seriously, uh, which I yeah. guess perhaps takes us into our. Last topic for discussion, uh, which is we were saying that this was nice to get back to see Beth, as we haven't seen her for a while. Yeah. And this was, uh, you know, in the arc of the Jim-Beth relationship. Um, this definitely has its place. Yes. So, yeah, I think we see a an interesting subsection, an interesting slice of, the, of their dynamic.
2: Yeah, I was actually thinking about this because I got to refresh my mind, my refresh my brain. Rockford Files and just kind of glancing at the episodes that have come before to see where we are in the Jim Beth. Not that there's like a huge arc to their relationship.
1: I mean, I think there's kind of like where are we vis-a-vis A Portrait
2: of Elizabeth. That that was the one I was thinking of specifically and this is before that.
1: Yeah, which is towards the end of this um this season.
2: Yeah. So yeah, cuz cuz Portrait of Elizabeth is definitely where uh Their relationship comes into question, like, what is it that they're doing? Mm -hmm. So that's not in question here. Um, What's interesting is that Jim is treating her not as a client, but as a friend Mm -hmm. until she absolutely insists on being a client. Right. Not in those terms, but just basically is like... Like, this is how seriously I'm taking
1: this. I'm willing yeah. to pay you. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm not asking you for a favor. I'm not offering you, like, a, a trade. I'm. Do you know how important this must be to me for me to say I will
2: pay you? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about like Jim tries to talk everyone out of paying him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think it's angry when nobody pays him at the Mm -hmm. end. But, anyways, that's his Jim's thing. Um, But it is different if it's a friend. Right. And so. She, you know, has to get uh, over that hump uh, to get him to do the work for her. This is definitely, uh, well, I don't think there's any point in the series where there isn't a thing between them. Right.
1: Yeah. So specifically, there's a couple of moments because I was watching, you know, looking for them. Because I was thinking, like, if you have not watched this season or haven't watched a lot of this era of the show, yeah. Do you get from their dynamic here, like from what you see in this episode, what do you? what is the read of their relationship, right? Right. You know, we learned that she's a lawyer, you know, she and Jim clearly have background, you know, they're friends, you know, like in the same way that we see that him and Dennis are friends, right? And then I yeah. think there's a couple, there's some hints to a romantic relationship that are pretty lightly light touch in here that I think maybe we notice because we kind of know more of the episodes. There's a moment where she's like, I don't mind being alone. And he says, I mind. And that's before her apartment is tossed, right? Like that's before there's any idea that maybe she's in danger because of this. There's a line where he says, where they're talking about um, like whether Margot was going to tell adrian about the affair maybe maybe not and he says something like people do funny things when they're in love and, yes. and she just gives him this look like really uh, i don't even know how to describe it but it's very like yeah you know yeah oh you you're gonna tell me that people do funny things for love so that moment you know it seemed to encompass a little bit more of uh uh you know of their past
2: it's interesting because it's yeah there's nothing in this episode that specifically is about their relationship I should not nothing, but like beyond what we just talked about, but it's taken as written and Mm -hmm. it's certainly taken as written by the actors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And probably the director. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even Juanita is probably not specifically writing scenes that convey this, but having that inform the scenes.
1: Everything about their dynamic is informed by everyone's deep knowledge of these characters. Yeah. Even at this point, which is, you know, a season in, like they know the characters. There's still stuff that's getting paced out over time, but it's not like they need to dig deep to find backstory and stuff. Like everyone I would imagine is on the same page about what informs their performance. Yeah. Cause it would be different if it was like, cause you could have this exact same, you could have this exact same episode just with another person who isn't Beth, but is a lawyer that is a friend of Jim's. And
2: maybe it wouldn't have that valence because we haven't seen her before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, no, it's interesting because it isn't, it's even a trying thing. There's trying things that occur. Um, Beth's friend is murdered. There is good moments when, uh, you know, that is revealed and Beth, you know, uh, reacts to that. Mm. Beth's apartment is tossed and uh in in none of those situations is it like fundamental uh i think what i'm getting to is that uh that although there are these moments that that could highlight their relationship uh that deeply traumatizing moments that could highlight their relationship and how that that doesn't become that important of a factor in this episode Mm -hmm. uh which is an interesting choice
1: yeah it's it's definitely more focused on adrian yeah Definitely some fun individual scenes and looking into the back, you know, looking into the uh, creative background of Charles, of uh, Chaz Floyd Johnson was fun. Um, mm-hmm. While I was watching it, I think I kept on, not that I was anticipating something else to happen, but I kind of was waiting for something that never really came for me. And I don't know if that was like something yeah, about the plot. Maybe it was that the pacing was a little weird. And I like, which is weird because like I liked the this sudden twist like that was kind of my favorite part because yeah. i really didn't see the murder of of uh, bob coleman coming i think like i said there were so many lo- there were so many things that were just shown to us that i was like okay this is just going to show us what happens yeah and then that happens and i'm like oh that was not foreshadowed at all yeah. maybe it was <laughs> maybe i just missed it because i wasn't yeah you know looking for it so i and i like that because i was like kind of a surprising thing and something the show doesn't do that often sometimes we get we we find out that there's, like, a big boss behind who you think is originally behind everything. Right. But that sudden, like, oh, yeah, now he's dead. <laughs> yes. Not very common, but... Uh... It did mean that the pacing was very like here's a thing here's a big thing here's a thing here's a big thing, uh, yeah. which maybe was not as uh, pleasing to me as some other episodes. But now I feel like I'm I'm being mean to an episode that doesn't deserve it because it's a it's
2: a perfectly <laughs> fine like
1: it's a fine episode with a lot of fun stuff in it.
2: No, I I think I know. I I mean I I can't pinpoint uh, what you're talking about, but I I think I probably felt something of the same. It's not like there's a loose end. It's not like uh, there's something promised that wasn't delivered. Or maybe it's exactly that. We just can't figure out what was promised. Mm -hmm. But um, it was a very enjoyable episode. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, that's done. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and
2: that's that then. Okay. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I guess I do feel a little bit like Margot's murder isn't actually resolved.
2: Yeah, I think that might be part of it yeah as we kind of explored just moments before it's not really uh clear what was mm-hmm. the motivation or well she well yeah it's not really clear who was responsible or how it happened right. But then again that's the cops are saying it was an accident mm-hmm. uh,
1: which i might have misstated whether that line was at the cops say this or whether that was just jim using that as to make that line delivery work like my the only accident that they made you know
2: my impression from the show was that that was the the story that the mob that they were trying to get her and she died trying to get away mm-hmm. that was my impression of it right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. so like it wasn't that the mob intended to they didn't put a hit out on her mm-hmm. they were trying to get the uh ledger from her right right they, yeah and uh she went off the road. Mm-hmm uh and and ended up drowning Mm. but like i could be filling in some blanks there in fact i probably am
1: (laughs) yeah again it's it's the premise for the episode it's not really resolved in a way that makes me feel like like i like i know what happened yeah sometimes you have a 50 minute television show and some stuff's more important than other stuff and in this case Seeing the uh, the car action scene and um, yeah, that's good. <laughs> having good uh, Beth, Jim, and Dennis banter is probably more important than spending yeah. more time on a lot of the premise setup. So yeah, you know, that's how it goes. Fun episode. Fun episode. This episode is followed sequentially. In broadcast order, so this is the Deep Blue Sleep, and then the next episode is the Great Blue Lake Land and Development Company, um, <laughs> which we did actually uh, fairly recently, followed by the Real Easy Red Dog, followed by Resurrection in Black and White. So we have a whole little color color story oh, here.
2: the Rockford <laughs> Spectrum.
1: Yes. Uh none of them really have anything to do with each other that I know of. We haven't done real easy red dog yet, but uh yeah. I did think that the deep blue sleep might there might be some like noir like reference or something, but I don't think that I think it's just from she died in a lake.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's what it was.
1: Anyhow, I think we've we've gotten through all the things to say about this episode. Uh do you have anything else for us, Epi?
2: No. As always, never have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, well, in that case, we will be back next time with another episode of The Rockford Files.